we have, in my opinion, a Central Coast Mariners legend. He was part of the inaugural club, like inaugural team, Wayne Sully O'Sullivan, who I've been found out today that hates being called Wayne. So it's Sully from now on. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for joining me today. And how is lockdown going for you at the moment? Yeah, firstly, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, look, yeah, we're in a relieved state this week because we finally go on a school holiday. So there's no uh, school homeschooling. So we've had uh, nine weeks of that. So it's been interesting to say the least. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, nine weeks. And then if you count the two extra weeks of, it's been about 11 weeks of lockdown. So that's, yeah, yeah. that would not have been fun, mate. Um, so let's get stuck into a bit about you. You're born in Cyprus. And but you grew up all over the UK and Europe. Tell us about that experience mm-hmm. and what it was like. Yeah, so with my dad's work, when he was in the Royal Air Force, um, we were stationed in Cyprus when I was born in 74, mm-hmm. which is actually the time where uh, Cyprus was divided by the civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had the whole family evacuation situation and whatnot, which was all obviously quite dramatic at the time, but I was unbeknown to me because I was literally. You know, 12 months of age. A fetus, yeah. Um, exactly, yeah. So, um, and then we, we've we lived in Gibraltar as a family as well through Dad's work. And then we lived all over the UK, as you said, through uh, Dad's Royal Air Force. So life of, um, life of a gypsy, really, to an extent. Um, but uh, for me, it's um, allowed me, obviously, to see a lot more of the world than I'd imagine. Of course. And honestly, maybe somewhat more of the world than even football helped manage to help you do, would you say? Yeah, I mean, football really was an easy... Um, switch for me then from that point of view because you know you, you go from contract to contract and you know you, you're not ever quite sure where you're going to be from one year to the next so the idea of moving was um, something I was familiar to me yeah now that's fair enough and that definitely as you said would have helped you um, with contracts and um, in general being constantly on the move um, and so at what age did you move from um, oh, brain fighting hard I'll quickly edit that out um, so when you've, geez, I don't even know where I was going. Even though I have me listed so right. three to your youth academy days with Swindon town. Uh, and then you ended up making your professional debut, like top tier with them. Um, Swindon town's top tier club that they had at the time. What was it like going through the ranks of the youth academy? Cause some team, some players at clubs and youth academies don't necessarily get to play. Mm-hmm you know, in, their fir- in the first team of the academy that they, mm. you know, play for. What was it like for you? Yeah, I mean, I was at Swindon from the age of age of 12. Um, and so, and, and even though we moved on several occasions between there, my loyalties was always to Swindon. So I was um, identified in what they called at the time of Bobby Robson soccer camps. Bobby Robson used to be England's manager at the time. Mm-hmm. And they used to run these camps all over England. And my local one was with Swindon Town. And I was identified there by guy called John Trollope, who was, went on to be my youth team coach when I actually finally moved. Um, but I left, I left home at 16 and a half and moved into um, the youth team digs where there was basically six of us living in a house yep. with the laundry lady at the time and her husband. So we had half what the house that, there. What the was that side. like, moving, yeah, moving it was out of home to, to that? Just a bunch of lads playing footy sort of thing? Yeah, it was amazing. The, the, the most amazing time of my career, to be honest. Yeah, but At the time, the realities of that, when you leave home at that stage, is we were put up and say in a house that's literally on the end of the ground. It's still there to this day. Yeah, wow. And the laundry lady ran it. And so she made dinner. Um, we had to obviously look after ourselves, do our own washing and whatnot. But we had one half of the house and she lived in the other half. There were eight of us in the house. Um, yeah, age between 16 and 18. First year apprentices and second year apprentices. And 
we got up every day, went to work and work then days were, you know, you clean people's boots. Everybody had a pro, you clean people's boots and you swept dressing rooms, clean toilets and then went and played football you, and then came back and tidied up after yeah. everyone else. Yeah. yeah and and yeah, that wage was very small. Very, very small. But, 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 but the experience best time of my life. Would, have been, would have been priceless, you know? Yeah, it was, um, it, it was, yeah, it, it makes, it makes you, it, and unfortunately nowadays those systems aren't in place, but it, it certainly makes you appreciate um, what you get further down the line. And it also gives you a real reality of you know, what a day in the life of a proper work day is, you know, getting up early and doing those things prior to getting to play football. Living. Exactly. It, it, it helps you sort of, it helped instill a sense of this is not a, um, this is not a, god-given thing for you you need to earn your way through for like to into professional sports sort of thing yeah yeah it was it was fabulous yeah but uh, as i say yeah, those, those days you trained every day you play two games a week and if you're fortunate enough you play into the reserves and if then you're fortunate there you move into the first team and thankfully for me um i yeah i turned i turned pro at 18 and then i was there for four years i think in in total then so all, all up i was at been in town from the age of uh, 12 through to 23. Oh, wow. So a big chunk of your life and a big chunk of your formative life was spent at Swindon. So um, as you said, it was, a, it was a bit easier to change, you know, contracts and whatnot due to your upbringing. But how did it feel going from uh, Swindon to Cardiff City, given your loyalty for like the last 11 or so years at that time was with Swindon? Yeah, it was a big wrench for me because I was particularly settled at Swindon and we were going particularly well at the time. We'd moved between, I mean, the club itself had gone, yeah, ironically enough, the club, it's a tiny little club that holds probably about 17,000 when it's packed to the rafters. Yep. Um, and the club on two occasions had been promoted into what was the highest division at that time, which yep. um, originally around would have been the first division. Secondly, would have been yep. the Premier League in its yep. um, first one or two years. So they had a year there. Um, so the club went all the way up from fourth division to the Premier League. Wow. And then it got relegated uh, down two divisions. Um, I was in the promotion factor as a, as a youth team player, part of that. Then I was a pro um, when we got relegated on two occasions. Um, and then, uh, again, we got promoted again by winning um, League One up into the Championship. And I was regular in that and then playing in the Championship. So it was a real mix of emotions, mm-hmm. a real grounding as you say about you know, what to expect from football the highs and lows uh, bigger stadiums small stadiums bigger crowds small crowds everything in between hey, sometimes so. a smaller crowd like seventeen thousand, if they pack to the rafters and are chanting sound like a crowd of fifty thousand. yeah i mean seventeen thousand not a small crowd in england anyway but no, yeah when, when it's when it's full as you say it's it's full, but yeah, you go from the extremes of three thousand to people um, to to playing somewhere like you know Goodison Park, which has thirty thousand people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, yeah, the extremes were yeah. But you look back on it now, it, yeah, wow, well, yeah, it's a great experience at the time. You're just playing football. Absolutely, and obviously after Cardiff, you had a bit of time at Plymouth Argyle again. Uh, you could say um, going down the road to Plymouth Argyle. Well, not down the road, but you know just. Um, going to a new club, what was the atmosphere yeah. there like and the change and the, you know, was it a good change for you or do you think um, you you could you wish you could have stayed on a bit longer at Cardiff? Oh, look, Cardiff was great, but when I went to Cardiff, Cardiff was a real eye-opener because I'd been playing in a championship team where the championship is physically demanding anyway and it's mm. rough to it's an extent compared to football. Compared, even Yeah, even compared to the Premier League, there's like 46 matches in the championship. 
There is. Um, but then if you move to Cardiff at the time, and I moved to Cardiff, um, Cardiff at the time were, were, were Division 3, so you couldn't oh, wow. go much lower. So I only went there because um, there was a, a guy at a time called Russell Osmond who was a bit of a... Uh, an idol for me who actually convinced me to go there at the time because there's a bit of a breakout of a situation where I'd fallen out with the coach at Swindon um, (laughs) in Steve McMahon and it got to the stage here where um, I'd gone from playing regular to asking for a transfer request because I could potentially move to a rival club of the similar level if not above and that was very close to going through it didn't happen and in the end some six months later um, I'd been training with the youth team um, stuck over in a corner, you know, not being communicated to at all by the senior staff. And wow. in the end, it got to six months. I just need to get out and play. And that's that's where he convinced me to come to Cardiff. I went to Cardiff in Div 3, and that was the biggest eye opener ever because it was like, wow, this this is a tough league. This is and just yeah, it was brutal. Reignite that love of football that I'm guessing. Not really. Sounds, no. I was, I was no, not Maybe at all. you sort of lost it a bit at the end of Swindon by the sounds. No, 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 it wasn't a case of losing. It was just more reality check to what, ah. when you talk about competitive leagues and difficulties of playing, uh, and we talk about players going overseas, you know, the, the Division Three football player is literally living from one paycheck to the next. And he is on such the desperation of that particular lifestyle it's and the pressures of that of lifestyle. It's five than it is for a... Uh, Premier League players sort of thing well there's, there's just so much more that they've got to consider because they're literally paying a mortgage versus already owning their home you know so okay. their performance yeah. and, the, and the pressures they're under are huge so it was and a club like Cardiff is a huge club historically and it's backing to being a, a massive club again now but mm. that that's yeah there's only two teams really in Wales and it's Cardiff and Swansea and the rivalry there is phenomenal and huge. I experienced that when I moved there with the fact that, um, you know, we had police escorts going to games and oh, helicopters wow. that come over when the fans come in and uh, they literally bust in, bust out as fans because the the, the dangers of uh, of the fans of that particular era, you know. So yeah. it was complete eye on that. But fortunately for me, a guy called Frank Burrows arrived there. And again, we had a fantastic year. We won promotion out of that league. And it's just, um, for me, it was a financial thing to move to Plymouth at the time for a coach that I respected as well. And, Kevin Hodges. So those two experiences were fantastic, um, but they were very difficult. And the standard of the competition, you know, it wasn't where I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then I had a, had a night out one night with a few friends in in Bristol and caught up with a guy called David Lee who'd been playing at Paramount Power. Yep. And he gave me a number for a guy that ironically turned out to be the guy that I used to clean his boots at Swindon Town, which is David Mitchell. No way. <laughs> and then. Dave Mitchell rang me and said, look, do you want to come play in Australia? <laughs> and you're like, yep. <laughs> well, at the time, it was a, it was a decision where I was like, oh, show me what it's about. He said, okay, we'll pay for you to come out. We had, I had 10 days, I think, in Australia and Sydney. Like and a we trial had a type tour. Thing. Well, it was, it was a trial, I suppose, yeah, from, from both people. Mm-hmm. But really, from his point of view, it was a case of trying to convince me at the time to come because I was just not convinced that you played football in, in Australia. <laughs> And, Are you still convinced? <laughs> well, yeah, I am now. Yeah. Yeah. But we actually ended up, and part of that, I actually I couldn't go wrong because it was a trip to Australia yep. um, paid combined for. with, fully fully paid for, combined with um, a trip to um, China where we played um, in in, uh, in Shanghai, I think it was. Uh, oh, wow. Couldn't really go wrong. 
Oh, absolutely not at all. And obviously, that was around 2001, uh, the turn of the century. Mm. You, you come into in the Parramatta Power in the NSL. Um, and yeah, you played quite a bit of time at Parramatta Power and then jetted to North, uh, Northern Spirit. Uh, what was it like playing for those two clubs before the, you could say, creation of the A-League? Yeah, look, it was... It was, it was good. I, look, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the idea of landing in Australia and you, you were, it was no longer about, you know, wherever you went, people knew you. So it, it doesn't matter if you play in England for you know, Halifax Town or uh, Manchester United. Your local town, you know, you are focal point and yeah. um, your team's performance on that weekend kind of sets up the, the mood of the town or the city or yeah. um, whatever it may be, the community. So you win and everyone's happy. You lose, everyone's not happy. And that's then reflected back onto you as an individual within the community. So, you know, you can be having a drink with everybody uh, next minute. No one wants to talk to you. So that, those kind of things were, there's a little bit of uh, obscurity here where people didn't really know. And you could just go and play football and relax. Um, but then in the reality of that as well, it's like, well, where's the edge where you really, outside of going to um, Perth Glory at the time, which had great yeah. crowds and great atmosphere. They were, they were huge, um, yeah. Yeah, it was a little bit lost. So... Strange, but very enjoyable. I met some really good friends and I've still those friends today now um, and some good times. But obviously then the spirit experience was was very unique because that was the first time ever I'd experienced a club going into administration where we didn't get paid. And um, all of us literally had to do something else during the daytime. We trained in the evenings because we weren't getting paid for a while. And obviously that was under Laurie McKinnon, right? So um, Laurie was the assistant of Parramatta when I landed he picked me up from the airport took yep. me to my hotel so he's the first person I met in Australia and wow, so you had he was also a, the yeah you had quite a previous um you know ongoing thing with him even before the Mariners oh absolutely yeah yeah we go way back to I say the first person I met and then he was the head coach of spirit through those difficult times but he managed somehow to keep this group together yep. and that core group actually became the core of the Mariners, Mariners. people like Stuart Petrie Noel Spencer um, I'm goosebumps right yeah, Alex Wilkinson, John Hutchinson, all these guys were were part of the spirit um, oh, man, drama, if you like. As I'm sure you'll remember, the Mariners fans back in the day before Western Sydney were a club, the Mariners fans were definitely the loudest. And, and that's probably maybe my bias as a Mariners fan. You obviously played at every other stadium against other clubs in that 05 to 07 era. But would you say that the Mariners fans were the loudest fan group before the Wanderers came into the into the equation. Yeah, we were really lucky through that period because the the local community really jumped behind it. And, and we struggled initially. Like we, we didn't really get off to a great start. We really struggled the first six games and we couldn't get a win, I don't think. And then, but through that, that whole marinated support behind the goal and marinated I remember going to Newcastle and filling it. 16, yep. <laughs> yeah, and we filled it at Newcastle in away games and there was oh, a real yeah, colloquial feel. Absolutely. Yeah, it was fabulous. But no, it's probably ourselves and, and Vic victory and fairness to them have always done it well. Even in the oh, old stadium at the Olympic yeah, Stadium, yeah. they did it well as well. So um, so yeah, no, it was they were really enjoyable times that first year or two. Honestly, it, it's it's great to hear because I, I remember those days as a fan. Going, I mean, I was a little kid at the time, but I still remember going to the football every weekend or every home game that there was, especially the New Year's Eve one that they'd always have New Year's Eve and then fireworks after. They still yeah. did that. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, and I most recently went to a Mariners match back end of last year, like literally the, the it was actually against the Jets at, um, it was the round before finals, um, mm -hmm. which we unfortunately lost, but um, it was, 
unfortunately, the atmosphere just wasn't there compared to back in the day. Even when we weren't doing well, as you said at, at the start, there was there was still an atmosphere there, and I'm, I just I, I missed that a bit. Um, mm-hmm. but it, was, it was still good to get to a Mariners game, regardless. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, from a fan's point of view, it was amazing back in the day to go to basic scene, as you said, the Marinators. We'd always yell at you know Hacho, give us a wave, or Sully, you know, <laughs> near us, we'd yell it out. Um, now speaking of the Mariners days, um, who, which teammate was the biggest pest? Oh, Nick Merger. Nick yeah. Merger was out of doubt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It was a prank story. He was just a pest. A pest, a complete pest. Like every minute of every day, you had no idea what this geezer was going to do next. So, uh, um, but he, yeah, he was a fabulous player. He's really unfortunate in the time that I was there actually because he had a few injuries. But um, yeah, he was a fabulous football player, but a complete pest. Yeah. <laughs> and um, while you were at the Mariners, you actually made the switch from your regular position of being a midfielder to being hmm. a, a defender. How did you handle that positional change? Yeah, look, I, I handled it because the coach told me to do it. It was quite simple, really. <laughs> but no, look, it was it was different. But um, yeah, it is funny because I, I, I mean, I. It was a switch, but in reality, um, yeah, through through the days I played, it used to be quite an unusual thing to have what they called a utility player. Nowadays, all players play different positions. It's just kind of the norm. Um, but for me, you know, as a young kid, I started central midfield. I became an attacking midfielder. I became a winger. I became a fullback on both sides. Um, I became a holding midfielder, um, and in the end, I became a fullback. So it was not, nothing new to me from the point of view of playing a different position. Um, and in many ways, it was probably something when I look back on retrospect and go, yeah, can't have my time again. I'd probably just play fullback because I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, fair. Um, and again, while you were at the Mariners, uh, as you said, Laurie was at Parramatta and he was at uh, Spirit. And what was it like when he took the reins of the Mariners and, as you said, kept that core group to the Mariners? And, you know, how did he handle bringing on the Mariners into the A-League? Uh, look, it, it was great, but you know, um, the, I'm not sure how public the, the the view of the Mariners is or the understanding of the Mariners was. But when we switched from Spirit, the, the group that agreed to come, initially it was under a group of ownership that was going to kind of take the Spirit model and move it up to the coast, become part of this new regime. We got shown the stadium, we got driven up on a bus. Mm-hmm. shown around what it was going to be about. We were like, wow, this is going to be amazing. That particular ownership group turned out that they fell over completely. And, and it, was, it was almost that the Mariners never actually existed. Um, but it was only through uh, Laurie McKenna um, and his desire to get a football team up and running um, and a few key people at the time that actually made it happen. Uh, yeah, John McCain, John, John McKay and uh, John Gorman. Um, and Laurie, they, they all became crucially important to the future of Mariners because it literally almost never happened. And then so all of a sudden, through support from FFA, those guys made it happen. And he brought that team and our whole team was built around that. And that's where the Mariners culture that people talk about started. And uh, that, that first eight, what was it, 10 years, I suppose, for Laurie, eight to 10 years. And that was that was really where it was founded through those that kind of reality of the situation that people were living um us as players and them as staff so that was really where um the playing style and the rest of it evolved from it's just about people just working hard oh, absolutely and t- touching back on your teammates we said you said nick merger was the biggest pest but who had the weirdest pre-game routine or ritual like whether it's like super mega superstitious or just was like really weird in how he handled things pre-game 
Uh, yeah, that's a good, good question. Um, there were, we had some good personalities at the time and we had people like, uh, Danny Vukovic, he was very relaxed and uh, he was a very young man at that time. He seemed he was, very, yeah, very relaxed. Broken. Um, and we had quite a young, there was a young group and an older group, and I was in the older group. But yeah, we yeah, had Danny Vukovic. Yeah, we had Danny Vukovic, Alex Wilkerson, John Hutchinson, uh, Matt Osman. All those guys were really young and just kind of, you know, they just prank around, mess around, super relaxed. And then there were some of us older ones. I mean, for me, it was about trying to get my body ready every game. Um, so I'd literally be rolling out forever. And someone like Stuart Petrie was a super pro towards the end, and he was super disciplined. And um, we had uh, Nick Merger, as I said, who would just literally just kind of rock up and play. Same with Tommy Pondliak, super cool, oh, just I like yep. so relaxed as a personality, and that's how he played. And um, it was a pretty relaxed group, to be fair. Um, yeah, someone like myself was probably more intense than most because I was just all about having to get my body ready. We had Andrew Clark, who was at the time our... Um, he feels my our, favorite player. <laughs> well, he was... Clark, the reality of the Mariners first years, we, you know, all these sports science that follows it now, video analysts that follows it now. You know, Clark, he was our... Um, he was literally our centre-back and also our S&C department. So he was literally the guy that got us fit. So uh, if you could keep up with Clarky, that was the test. And oh, nice. it was incredible. And he was super fit. So. Absolutely. As I said, there's a reason he's at the FFA now. So, you know, that's yeah. a testament to him. And we had a great captain at the time in Noel Spencer as well, who kind of just, he was the, he was the glue of the group. Everyone loved yeah. Spenny. Now, a lot of clubs, obviously, when they start up, usually um, the coach usually picks the captain first up. But there's also now, and a lot of times, even in tradition as well, it's the playing group chooses the captain. What was the, you know, behind uh, for, for Noel Spencer? Was it the playing group chose the captain and as in Laurie let the team do like a team vote or did Laurie pick Noel as the captain? No, Laurie, uh, Laurie picked Noel. Spenny was our captain at Spirit and he was our captain when we landed here. Um, yeah, no, Laurie picked him. But he was the right person for being captain. Of course. He, he, as I say, he was, yeah, the, the word's thrown around a lot, but he was loved by everyone. He was just, a, he's just a great guy. He's a great human being. Uh, he's a very good football player. Um, and uh, yeah, he's, he's just, he did a really good way about it. That no one would argue that Spenny was the captain. It's easy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and after your time with the Mariners came to an end, you somewhat took a little bit of time out from football. And then in 2011, you come back and played for Lake Macquarie. What was that like pulling, pulling the boots on again and, you know, having a run? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I, um, I actually, um, and again, I'm not sure if you're aware, but when I, because I went straight from finishing playing here with my contract with the Mariners mm -hmm. straight to Wellington. Oh, as assistant coach. That's right. Uh, but I actually landed in Wellington and went for dinner with Ricky Herbert, spent a day being shown around, wined and dined, and that night went to the um, to the uh, office block, which was in the middle of Wellington at the time, yep. uh, which was the owner's property, to sign my contract to play. Uh, oh. But when we arrived there, it transpired that um, Ricky... <laughs> was unaware that I was actually at the time I was in a, I was an overseas player because I wasn't I wasn't uh, didn't have my Australian uh, citizenship so I was still an overseas player and he'd signed his three Brazilians already uh, so it turned out that we're sitting in this awkward moment where he's gone I've signed three foreigners I've just found out you're a foreigner by your passport uh, and he said, yeah that's awkward <laughs> so it was at that yeah. point that he said leave it with me and he came back into the room five minutes later after speaking to the owner and said listen 
I want you to stay. Um, I want you to be part of what we're doing. Um, I've got an assistant coach in Stuart Jacob. Would you like to be my second assistant? I know you've done your A license. I know you've done your masters. Um, would you like to be? Would you like to stop playing and start coaching? So it was that. It was like that. That clear. It was like there's your decision. Make it now. Yep. I said, look, it's a big decision. Not why I came here. Um, slept on it that night. Rang home to my my fiance. Uh, Renee at the time and um, she wasn't my fiance, she was my girlfriend at the time I said listen, if you want to move to Wellington by the way I'm going to become an assistant coach <laughs> well, we moved so that was it um, but then yeah, flash forward some five years later I was coaching up in Newcastle running a programme and a guy called Chris Turner convinced me to kind of come across and play for Lake Macquarie which I didn't want to do the last thing I wanted to do was play football because I just thought my body wouldn't do it but I did it for six months, highly enjoyed it um, yeah. but um, like, it, I think I made the right decision. Uh, it was just more, I was just grumpy. I said wow. to him, mate, I'm too grumpy for this because I took it too serious. Uh, gotcha. um, yeah. But it was good. It was an enjoyable little time. I met some good friends there and uh, I've got some very good friends in Newcastle. Yeah, nice. Honestly, that's awesome to hear. Um, and going back to your early days real quick before we go on to some more topics, you managed to get some rep football under, under your belt for the Republic of Ireland under-21s. What was it like? pulling on the jersey for your heritage, your your family, and, you know, playing for the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, look, it was it was where, at that particular time in my career, you know, I was playing regular, we were playing championship football, I was playing regular in that, and, um, yeah, it was kind of the, the high point of my career. And to be offered to come and play at a time of the 20, under 21s in an era where, Ireland in particular in their first grade had really strong team. I mean, I don't know if you're too young to remember that, but back in those days, that team had um, Ray Houghton, Paul McGrath. Um, it basically had half of Liverpool's team, some of Manchester United's team, some of Aston Villa. Some, yep. it, everybody it had, it had top Premier League football players that basically had they they spent a night in Dublin they basically became Irish so (laughs) that team went on did some amazing things at that time and Jack Charm was the coach and yeah so all those things um yeah it was fantastic so I had three appearances there but um yeah it's yeah it was it was great it was great times that's awesome to hear um after your uh, career came to an end, after the 2011 stint with Lake Macquarie, you then took up coaching more or less um, full-time. You then went on to be the Jets women's uh, W League coach uh, or assistant. I may be wrong in one of those ones. What was it like going from, um, again, you, as I said, playing park footy for lack of a better term for Lake Macquarie to going back into coaching with uh, the, New- the Newcastle Jets? Yeah, well... Yeah, as I said, the the football thing with Lake Macquarie was just literally just on the side. That oh, was just okay. a bit. That was that was in reality that was just a bit of fun. So that was, um, and in my case, I'd been so as soon as I stopped playing professionally, I went straight into professional coaching with Wellington yeah. Phoenix assistant. Came out of that, and I was offered a job by the TD for Australia at the time. We landed back in Australia because uh, my wife was pregnant with Priya, our oldest daughter now. Um, and I got offered a, a job in Newcastle, which was um, basically um, the Emerging Jets program. So to oversee the Emerging Jets program for boys and girls. So I took that role on. We lived in Central Coast in Terrigal. Yep. Yep. I worked in Newcastle for three years. And that's when this situation happened with Lake Macquarie to play on the side. Gotcha. And that, tr- that, that kind of evolved under a guy called David Smith, who was the TD in Newcastle at the time with Northern New South Wales. 
we evolved that program into a development program for boys and girls and boys going towards the Jets and girls going towards a future W League team. And then the W League came along. So Which I kind of just excellent. evolved into that. We just maintained that program. Like the um, type vibe type thing. Yeah, uh, uh, but given we had no budget in Newcastle to, to run a W League team and it was given being supported by the Federation, yeah. it wasn't being paid for by the A League team, it was being paid by the Federation, there was no budget. So we literally just kept the development program going through. The, the yeah. great thing of that now is that lots of those girls have gone on to play W League, overseas football and representing Matildas. Absolutely. So, you know, so it's, it's, fantastic to see that that's happened now a lot of those girls are playing so that was it was good fun but for me it was a unique experience because um yeah yeah i coach girls manage girls don't know we're coaching at w league level um yeah it was obviously a big jump and uh it was it was an interesting thing because it, it is different you know high high-end girls football is different to high-end male football of course. different environment different cultures um very much same outcomes football yeah. related but the management of people is very much different, uh, but it was great times. Oh, for sure. And, and that's awesome here. And then after your Jets W League time, you you could say jetted back down to the Mariners and became an assistant and then eventually became caretaker in 2018. What was it like coming back to the Mariners in a coaching role? And in general, what was the just whole everything like uh, throughout both of those times as assistant and as caretaker? Yeah, look, um, the... Uh... The coming back as assistant coach was because um, at the time Andrew Clark was still here and John Crawley was here and Phil Moss was the assistant that took on the head coach role from Arnie. And it was through John Crawley and Clarkey um, that I was recommended then to, to Mossy to come in and help. Um, loved it. Um, loved it. Um, obviously, Mossy did a great job, actually, um, especially when you look back on history over the last 10 years. Absolutely. With the highest performing coach out of all of those coaches that have been <laughs> through that stage, which is yeah. ironic because he was moved on quicker than he probably should have been, which is really unfortunate for him. But he, he ultimately, when he took over from Marnie, I mean, that's as high as you can go as a bar in Australian football. Um, yeah. I mean, him and Ange basically are the two top coaches in Australian history. And Mossy came in and he got us to, I think, third in the table. Um, yeah, we were one point away from qualifying for last 16 in Asia. Um, yeah, had some great results. Got knocked Very out in the resume, sure. in the semi in, in the in the in the in the major semi. We got knocked out. Um, so he did a great job. And then next year, obviously, yeah, their results. We get you get it. Results are results, but yeah, there's still the team was not was was not performing badly. It was just unfortunate in a number of areas, and yeah, some some things transpired that within the club that um, Mossy ended up not keeping his job, which was really unfortunate. Um, I then was moved into a role which was basically technical director mm-hmm. across Central Coast up here and North Shore at the time down in the northern suburbs. So I worked okay. across both. There was like 42 teams. Yep. Um, worked with Ken Shembury up here and down there with a guy called Joe Haywood. Um, it was great. Enjoyed it for two and a half years. And then the club brought in Paul Ocon and Ivan Jollick. Uh, yeah, Paul great uh, appointments, fabulous appointments. And um, and then, yeah, again, decisions were made that they, they weren't the people that were going to be kept. Um, uh, I was was asked, or I was told pretty, pretty much to take the job for the oh, last so four, four games. 
Oh, poor no, guys. not really, because at the end of the day, it was like they didn't have anyone. Can you take this job and can you do it oh. four rounds? But I, my job was TD, and okay, um, yeah, I'd, I'd expected that I would go back to being TD. That didn't happen, and the new coach came in uh, in Mike Mulvey, and then decisions were made, and then uh, that was the end of my time at Ramirez. That's fair. And then up come the uh, Bonnie Rig and Barker College opportunities and you're still with those as far as I'm led to believe I'm, I know you're still with Barker College I just don't know if you're still with Bonnie Rig as well uh, how has that gone so far for you and how's their season going so far unless it was or unless it was cancelled due to this lockdown BS yeah so I um, I actually took six months out after the Mariners scenario a uh, football for the first time in my life so first time in 28 years I took wow. six months out of football what was that um, yeah weird <laughs> so, so it was like it took six months out to realize that now i need to be back in football that's what i do it's what i'm good at that's what i need to be so i went back into football with barker college just took their their first their first 11 um that went particularly well they won their school tournament thing which wow. is great um that now has evolved over two years to the extent where i took one team took two teams took three teams and as of now going forward i'll be their director of football at the school which is great wow. um, it's a fabulous school Great setup, great resources, good people. Um, and I work with some really good people over just trying to build a program that suits a school of that, that caliber, which is which is fantastic. Um, did Bonnie Rig for 18 months, as you said. Um, that was good, that was enjoyable. Um, no longer there. Uh, and as of last week, um, I've agreed to take on the Central Coast United role up here. Um, and we'll we'll build it into 2022 and it's uh, there in uh, MPL three. I was going to say Central Coast United. Uh, what the they used to be called the Lightning. Maybe I'm wrong. Or- yeah, it's gone through a n- number of names, but the the major point of difference there is obviously Central Coast United. Um, yeah, is is not owned by the federation. So um, work alongside everything else up on the coast, which is great. You know, with the school, with the federation, with the Mariners. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, the aim of the club is to provide a parachute, if you like, for boys that fall out of um, A-League pathways because not everyone can fit into that pathway from the gotcha. academy system. Gotcha, yeah. And then also... To getting back into it. Correct. Well, to get back into it and to order platform on to go somewhere yep. else, but yep. also for... But also to provide, um, you know, the highest possible level of competition for the guy that doesn't necessarily make the life choice to want to be a footballer. You yes. could be, yes. you know, this year we'll have guys that are bricklayers, you know, painters, yep. decorators um, and whatnot. Um, and those guys are obviously building their own businesses on the coast and their own families on the coast. This is their home and they want to play at a higher level of football. You know, if we were to win promotion next year, you'd be an MPL two, which is a very competitive level of football. Absolutely. And if you could have an MPL one team on the coast, as well as an A-League team on the coast, That'd that would provide... A high level of football for a lot of people, as well as the fabulous job that the federation does locally with um, all the clubland football. You know, so having that availability to everybody would mean we can keep more quality people here, and that's that's the aim. Absolutely. Um, and a fun question uh, before we continue on with the with the other stuff. Um, yep. Obviously, the lockdown at the moment, uh, you weren't able to have a Netflix binge due to it being during school time. But last ah. year's lockdown, the big ten weeks when even school was cancelled. What was your Netflix binge or Foxtel or whatever? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we never had Netflix in this house. And then I got convinced in it last year by my daughter, who's 12, <laughs> yep. because we needed it. You know, otherwise, we would die. Um, so, and you get were COVID, COVID we would die. You would have born, died of boredom. 
Uh, no, I wish we never took it because okay. now I have become addicted to it, as you said. So, okay. um, so yeah, so I had um, The Colony was probably yep. one that I actually watched, watched all of those. And then lately it's been, I think, uh, Sweet Tooth was one that I've watched. Okay. And, and now I'm on The Shooter. Okay, is The Shooter any good? I've, I've heard good things about it. It's not bad. Not bad. I'll judge it at the end though, because normally they kind of they start well and then they get a little yeah. bit yeah. Yeah, no, I should have ended ages ago. Did you so, not watch Tiger King or any of those ones that were popping last year? Nah, 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 nah. nah. I'm a little. I'm, I'm, I like it to be a little bit glitzy, glamorous, and shiny to kind of take me away somewhere else. I don't need anything that's have real. You watched Ted Lasso? <laughs> it's on Apple TV, but have you watched Ted Lasso? I haven't. No, I've, I've been oh, told I should. I've been should. told I should. You really yeah. should. I just got. Yeah. I, to tell you how addictive and how much I love it, I only got told about it two weeks ago. I've already watched every episode up until the newest one that was released last Friday, four times each. But it's on Apple, right? It's on Apple, yes. But yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. honestly, it's it's great. I cannot fault it. It's it's a bit funny. It's a bit drama. It's a bit it's yeah. a bit of everything. It's oh, it's so good. Honestly, yeah. I, I reckon you'll get a kick out of it. Um, I've been told I need to watch it. I'm not sure whether it's a a negative compliment or what uh, well i mean you know what you could do you, you could watch the trailer on youtube and then decide if you think it's worthy of watching all right i will i will yeah. um now next question is uh i could say you could say a bit of a, a depth one i don't know which coach had the biggest impact on your career as a player coach yeah yeah okay uh, yeah that's easy that's a guy called john trollope um, John Trollope was the guy that picked me up at 12 mm-hmm. and then coached me every school holidays when I'd come in and then was my youth team coach. Um, and yeah, so he, he, would, he is the biggest influence without a doubt on my football career as a coaching perspective. And as a, and being a coach, who do you think did you learn from the most or was the biggest impact to help you develop as a coach? Um, yeah, well, I think cliche to say but all of those coaches at some stage have taught me something even mm-hmm. the, the ones that not necessarily I you know looked at and thought well yeah we you know, I respect everything you do um, but you learn something from every coach possible again yeah, John Trollope not to do. correct yeah yeah correct but you know in in the cases of um, myself I, I've been fortunate I've had exposure to a lot of good quality coaches um, but yeah, again, John Trollope would, would stand head and shoulders for me above any of those guys. It's the guy that, um, yeah, instilled a level of discipline, um, yeah, a reality on what, what life is from a point of view of football to, um, to, to other aspects that are important in life. Um, so from a football point of view, it would definitely be him. I mean, the easiest, and it is the truth in my case, um, I was blessed with two incredible parents um, that taught me everything that's important in life. And, and from a football point of view, supported me um yeah to, to an incredible uh, beyond above and beyond um commitment point of view the, uh, the running joke with my parents was you'd never buy a car off Sully's dad because he's been to every single club in England <laughs> so um wow. yeah so yeah they followed me everywhere wow that's awesome um and I think two last topics or questions will help round this out first one is what is your personal highlight of your career as a player uh, personal highlight uh, yeah personal highlight would be um, yeah definitely making my debut um, 
and then scoring my first goal and then uh, winning a championship with Swindon. Yep. Um, and it would have been winning a grand final year one with the Mariners, but that didn't quite happen. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, that, that, that still haunts me a little bit, but uh, me bygones too. Bygones. <laughs> I can, yeah. imagine. I can yeah. imagine more so for you. Um, last, last one is, do you have any advice for any youngsters who would love to make it in the A-League or the Premier League or any big league of football, you know, one day? Yeah, easy. Um, just don't give up. Simple as that. There is no age on when you can't become a professional footballer. Mm. Just watch the TV on the weekend of a gentleman that's 36 years of age and he's the best footballer on the field, let alone the planet, arguably. So there is no age where you can't make that switch to professional football. There is no proven pathway that you must go through the system. You, you know, If you want to put in the hours and do the work, there's a whole load of ways you can get to somewhere in football and become a footballer. And if you're determined enough, you want to travel enough, um, and you want to you know, not take no for an answer and remain persistent, you can become a footballer with a level of hard work. So where you end up in that grand scheme of things, from the gentleman we're talking about in Ronaldo to others, everyone else in between, yeah, that, that will come down to, at some stage, the balance between commitment and ability. Um, but commitment will get you far more than ability. Absolutely. As the, old, as the old adage goes, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. Correct. Absolutely. I'm just going to quickly...